a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the Force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 83 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your ticket to the EU. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, www.StarWarsReport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes and right on our own Facebook page at SW Beyond Films. But enough about how you got here. Let's get the show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, Mark Herleman. And with me, like a Wookiee with a life debt, the EU guru himself, the Count of Continuity, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Verily, it is beyond the films. You've been reading the William Shakespeare Star Wars, too? Dude, I, I, uh, we were down at Barnes and Nobles, like, I think four days before it actually uh, was officially announced, and I was, I grabbed it and I spent like thirty minutes just flipping through it, checking it out. That's a pretty cool looking book. I, I'm not sure if I'm gonna buy it for my bookshelf or not, but I don't know. I'm kind of leaning towards it because all the R2 stuff. Yeah, it's it's, but it's a little weird. It's a little weird. It has a tendency to use a lot of Shakespeare's phrases and to do a lot of the we're going to end. Uh, a sentence with just weird syntax where the noun is at the end kind of stuff just because Shakespeare does it from time to time. It kind of overdoes that. But generally speaking, pretty decent. There's a couple of little bits in there that sound pretty good. Maybe we'll work one of those into the feedback episode that we have coming up at some point just since it's kind of an oddity and such. Now, what number of episode did you say this was? That's right. 83. We are like uh, maybe out of order. Depends on when you are uh, going to uh, listen to this. We are going to release it twice, so it's back in its regular order. Uh, The book is Crucible that we will be talking about, as you'll hear about in a second. But uh, we're so far ahead right now for the summer that we didn't want to wait a month before this got to you. So we wanted to make sure it was released timely enough. So we kind of did some flow walking, and this episode has jumped up and found itself in the 80 slot at the moment <laughs> so depends well, on when you're listening to this reminds me of i don't know how many of you guys out there are also readers of other comics but i was really big into image comics when they first started i got everything and checked them out at least for a while there was a series called Stormwatch. i think a couple other ones did this there's a series called Stormwatch that it was probably around issue 10 15 at best and it did a thing where they released issue 25 just out of nowhere. It's, we're going to skip 10 or whatever. Here's number 25. And the idea was that it was shocking because you see something that's happening in the future. And then instead of this just being like a possible future, leaping forward, days of future past kind of thing, it literally, when they finally came back around to it, it was, you know, 24 led directly into that one. And then we saw 26 that led directly out of it. By that time, I had given up on reading, but I had gone back and picked up 24 and 26 just to see how that had panned out. I remember that being a very cool experiment. So we've got our own little Stormwatch 25 moment for the, the old image fans out there, I guess. Here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. 
This week, we are going to explore Star Wars Crucible by Troy Denning. That is, at this moment, the furthest book out there in the timeline. Not to be confused with the comic line, Legacy Farther Down, which is still telling the story and continuing to go with Legacy Volume 2. Now, with that said, uh, consider this your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentience of All Ages, because here we go. Goody Proctor is a Sith! I must say, this is Arthur Miller's best Star Wars work to date. Um... <laughs> this is a weird one. I mean, I guess we should give the premise of this. The concept is supposed to be that now, after all the other times of being told that we are seeing the passing of the torch between Star Wars generations, that this is supposed to actually be it. That now we're supposed to see the big three, Luke, Leia, and Han, and to an extent Lando, sort of step back into the background and let the the other characters, the next generation or generations... Uh, Jaina's generation, which is now pretty old and, and, and some characters dead, and then Ben Skywalker's generation and such finally step into the forefront, which is kind of weird in the, in where we are right now within Star Wars publishing because we know that they had announced at least, uh, Paul Kemp's new duology, new two book series, and the Sword of the Jedi trilogy as being the next in these post Return of the Jedi series and We've recently learned that Paul Kemp's is on quote-unquote standby, and we haven't heard squat about Sword of the Jedi in ages. It seems like with Episode Seven being announced that we're getting sort of what amounts to a hold on any new post-Return of the Jedi stories beyond Crucible, and for, for you know for no reason I can discern, uh, Legacy Volume 2. I'm surprised Legacy Volume 2 is still able to produce issues right now. I'm wondering how many arcs of that we're going to see before that gets curtailed. But this may be not just the last of the big post-Return of the Jedi stories to focus on Luke, Leia, and Han before the passing of a torch. It may be a passing of torch not between generations, but between incarnations of the EU. Um, this may be the end of this run which makes it somewhat fitting that it's a weird book. It feels somewhat like some of the stuff we've seen with Troy Denning in the recent past, but it very much also feels like something we might have seen back in the Bantam days. Uh, that being said, we're going to get into our non-spoiler stuff first. This is... For some people, this will not be the book they're looking for. It is... Again, it's a weird book. <laughs> yeah, weird doesn't quite even begin to cover it. Now, what you were mentioning was sort of... The Jedi, I, I got into a, a, a little Twitter discussion about that because technically, as of right now, it has not been canceled, put on hold, or anything like that. They just haven't said anything about it. Uh, and Club Jade, they were the ones that reported about Kemp's books being put on standby, and they commented or speculated down at the bottom that maybe this is why we hadn't heard anything about Sword of the Jedi. Fandom has ran with that, and and I was quickly pointing out, you know, don't run with that because that could just uh, let them think that, hey, we don't want it, and that's not the case. You know, just because you haven't heard anything doesn't necessarily mean it has been canceled yet. So as of right now, Sword of the Jedi is still on. We just haven't heard anything more about it. So I, I, I just like to keep that positivity there. But Crucible being the handing of the torch, I, I, I would say for me, by the time this book was over, it wasn't so much a handing of the torch, but more Luke, Leia, and kind of Han coming to the final conclusion that we have to send the torch and we see no passing of the torch. Now, if we get sword of the Jedi, there is your passing of the, of the torch. You will finally have a book based off of that next generation and you will officially have that handing off. But if they don't ever give us that, then 
I think this is a failure once again for handing that torch. Right. This definitely what, what strikes me. I just recently, uh, right after Jody and I got married, we went on kind of a movie spree. You know, we we got our new futon and everything, and we spent a little bit though of our uh, of of the money that we were given as wedding gifts to say, you know what, let's get some movies to watch together that we haven't seen or that we want to see again. And we picked up this box set of the Die Hard films and over the span of about five days watched nice. all five Die Hard films. And you know that at the end of each Die Hard film, John McClane, Bruce Willis, looks like crap because he's got the living hell kicked out of him throughout the entire film. And at the end, he's just like, yeah, whatever. And you would expect him to just kind of sit down, smoke a cigarette or something and just be like, you know what? Pfft, forget it. I'm not doing this again. I'm ready to retire. And yet he comes back again in the next story. Always kind of, yeah. <laughs> I'm too old um, for this, Sith. <laughs> th that's kind of what it feels like here. It's less a matter of passing of the torch and more of just Han, Luke, and Leia for the first time, really, because they sure didn't seem like they were really being run ragged all that much in Fate of the Jedi. Um, here they are all kind of at the end, and they're just like, we're done. You guys want to deal with these crises that pop up? Have at it. But we've got the crap kicked out of us. We're done. By the end of this book... Uh, the big three, especially Han, have that feeling like in the Clone Wars where, I guess it was season four, everyone was talking about that was a season where Obi-Wan just got beat up all the time. It's kind of <laughs> like, it, they, Han's got to be feeling like Obi-Wan was during season four. Um, so I guess we should get into our non-spoiler stuff here to be a little bit more specific about uh, uh, the book itself rather than our vague impressions. Yeah, I would say, you know, you were really close there when you were mentioning Denning. This is a total Denning book. I mean, it, it does great. And then you get to the end and you're like, what the hell just happened? Because I have, that's my only issue with this writer. I love Denning stuff. Star by Star is my favorite. The man can rock a middle book. But when it comes to his endings on his standalones, on his trilogies, I'm always like, wait, what just happened? And this did not, did not leave me wondering. He totally did it again. I'm just, I got... I think once you get inside a certain prime base, all sense of what the heck you think you know is just gone, and you're like, wait, what in the hell is happening? Yeah, this is definitely, and I would say this is why I, I would compare it very much to the stuff that we saw in the Bantam era. This is definitely a Star Wars book that is much more hard sci-fi than it is sci-fi fantasy. There are mystical elements to it. Force elements in particular, but it's used in such a way that it feels much more like the Ang T monks or yeah. Waru, but not that bad. Uh, it feels different than we see with the films. Do not expect this to be something that captures the feel of the classic trilogy. They they catch it with the banter and with the dialogue between the big three, but from the standpoint of the story itself, not so much. And this is not quite what people expected. The general gist, and I don't think this is spoilerish here, uh, hence doing it in our non-spoiler chunk, um, the, the general storyline's a little odd. It is a big form of galactic peril. Yes. Yes, it is. But it's not what you would expect. Um, there is a big force element to this by the time we get to the end. There is a big quasi-apocalyptic threat the way that Del Rey is promoting the book. But the general concept here is simply that you have these two incredibly smart business people, ruthless, smart, these Kalamai, which uh, showed up in the RPG and have shown up very few times since. They're basically these big-headed little dudes 
who are incredibly smart because of their brain processing power. Do um, they remind you of the old, like, 90s version of Aliens from X-Files? <laughs> you know, honestly, what they reminded me of, when I tried to picture these guys, these little dudes with the giant heads, um, I picture either the leader, I think was his name, uh, from yeah. the Marvel comics, yeah. or I pictured, I used to have a toy back when Ninja Turtles was big, of, I think it's, is his name Kang, the brain dude? Oh, Krang. Yeah, Krang. Krang. Uh... Okay. <laughs> I, had a, I had a figure of him, but this is back when the figure of him didn't have the body. It was just like him inside this robotic suit. So when yeah, I, I'm, I'm, picturing, I'm picturing him as like a cross between the leader and Krang, or maybe uh, with sort of a body size like uh, brain from Pinky and the Brain from Animaniacs. <laughs> and... That they're when they're in these robotic bodies, these power bodies, uh, power suits, whatever you want to call them. That I'm picturing them as a cross between that little toy from Krang and the exosuits worn by Spike and Daniel in uh, Transformers the movie, the animated film. Yeah. See, I was thinking kind of like Dune, like the way the one guy was floating around the Baron. But go ahead. I'm trying to just to describe what the what the actual threat is here. They are they're these super smart guys, and apparently. Their mama got shot when they were little, and it didn't kill her, but it wound up screwing up her brain enough that she couldn't do the kinds of, of, of difficult calculations and, and machinations that they could now. So they lived in poverty, and they've been blaming someone for that all their lives. And in their hunt for who is responsible, now they've targeted Han. Uh, because they pretty much wiped out everybody else they suspect. I don't even think we ever get an answer as to whether Han did or not. Han says no, they say yes. I'm not sure that they ever resolve the issue. Yeah, no, but that's he flat the... out says, yeah, it was, it was, uh, he couldn't answer because he knew it wasn't him, but he wasn't there to find out. And they're like, well, we pretty much uh, took care of everyone else. <laughs> You're like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, lovely. Uh, so basically, you, you've got these guys who have a personal vendetta against Han, but they are essentially uber businessmen. They are, and you could maybe say that this, this book feels like it's coming out of the Occupy Wall Street movement in some respects. The villains are those two who are in charge of a massive company, which is sort of a shadow company that owns another company. Um, and that company that is the shadow one behind it all is trying to buy up resources in all these markets to not just corner one market or two, but to corner all markets and thereby dominate galactic trade, thereby dominate the galaxy in what's essentially a, a hostile takeover that includes force sometimes because they use shady mob methods at times. Um, and they want the ability to gain, uh, through some experiments and such, uh, to gain the ability to use the force. Because their thought process is, and this is pretty much the way it's worded in the book, that Palpatine was able to conquer the galaxy and run the Empire, albeit granted only for like 23 years, um, with the Force. But he wasn't a Kalamai. He wasn't super, super smart. He just had the dark side. So what could two Kalamai brothers with super brains do if they got their hands on the Force too? They could rule the galaxy. And yeah, logically that kind of makes sense. Um, conceptually it fits in with previous Star Wars history and whatnot. It's just that it doesn't feel like the kind of story I expected when they were going to give us the last big hurrah of the big three. You expect it to be some big galactic struggle, and sure, the last battle in this is freaky, weird, Troy Denning, mystic, what-the-heck-is-going-on type of stuff, but the general premise is basically one of corporate espionage and corporate power plays. Not the kind of thing I would have expected for this book. So in premise... 
in its villains in many respects. It is an odd one. I have one more uh, observation to toss in there before we get into um, the spoilerific stuff, but am I off the mark on this when it comes to just that it just doesn't feel like what was expected? Well, I mean, it, it definitely wasn't what was expected, but I, I think maybe your reaction, I was a little more open to it. I mean, I immediately looked up what the column I looked like because I was like drawing a big blank. Uh, I went to Wikipedia and saw the picture there, and that's when I got the, the image of the aliens from X-Files kind of in my head. Then I was able to kind of wrap my my brain around these guys being kind of like a creepy villain to a degree. Uh, but yeah, it wasn't what I was expecting. I, I, I think it worked. I, I enjoyed it. In the aspect of, you know, the, the death grudge, you know, it's easy for someone to misinterpret a situation and then build a hate on for somebody out of that misinterpretation. And that's what we saw with Han. But I don't know. Again, getting back to that passing of the torch, I was really expecting a passing of the torch. It was nice that Ben and Tahiri were involved, that Jaina had a minor role in it. But I was really kind of expecting more from them. I wasn't expecting it to be a situation where we're going to go into a rift where communication is really bad. And the only way you can communicate at all is a is a open across all channels kind of thing. So we can't quite say what we need to in the open. So we need to send physical people in here. And so we've got some people in here already, but Han and Leia are in there now and now you know, Luke's going to go in there because he wants to go have some fun and he's still kind of recovering from his battle against Ableth. And, you know, I mean, I like the tie-ins and stuff, but yeah, it wasn't what I was expecting, but that necessarily wasn't a bad thing. I really enjoyed the book all the way up until they entered prime base at the end. Once they got to the part where everything got really weird, really fast, I felt like the really weird, really fast wasn't very well defined. And that was why I was so like, what in the hell is going on? Because up until then, Denning was doing a really good job of laying things out. And then you get inside prime base and it's kind of like all physics and everything just change. Even the points of view get kind of hard to follow. It's like, what is going on? Denning, why must you always do this at the end of the book? I think you're right on the mark as far as the whole not feeling like it's a passing of the torch because of the limited role that the other generation plays. He basically, Denning pulls a reverse Choices of One. Choices of One is my prime example of badly done use of film characters. Because Timothy Zahn turned his characters into basically superheroes and turned Luke and Han and Leia into incompetence or caricatures of their previous selves. Um, this does the opposite. All the focus is on Han, Luke, and Leia. Lando gets some decent screen time. But everybody else, except, I guess, for the, the villains, uh, we have Murtagev, we have uh, uh, the return of a particular character from the previous story, uh, and we have the Crefts, uh, the two Kalamai. But beyond them, and I would even say that returning character to an extent, I mean, they don't utilize the other characters at all. Uh, Tahiri and Ben are there. I think uh, I think uh, Pete Morrison over at Lightsaber Rattling beat me to the punch um, on the joke because they are traveling around together inside the Chiloon Rift uh, looking for Mortis and looking for uh, Ohali, this uh, uh, Jedi who's gone missing in the area while looking for Mortis and everything. And they're basically traveling around on the ship on their own. Uh, she's not with Jag doing anything. Uh, ben is out there, uh, teamed up with her in this case, and, you know, there's that question of, what do they talk about? Because we sure don't get to find out much about what they've been doing or anything other than dialogue that only serves the main plot line. 
So maybe they were spending some time reenacting or talking about that uncomfortable uh, interrogation section back in Legacy of the Force where she was trying to put her hand down his pants. <laughs> Looking um, like a fool with like her hand literally. down his pants. Um, just, what, was that Denning that did that, though? I can't remember. Was it Denning uh, shoot, or was I it honest, Gold? <laughs> I honestly don't remember. It, just, it strikes me that none of the other characters, Jaina, uh, Blixen, who at the beginning, you, this Jedi trainee you think is going to be part of something, um, uh, Bar- Bardoon, I think, is the guy's name we see yeah, near the end. Bardoon, um, uh, had his own separate name, which they never mentioned why he was giving himself... No, 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 no. They, they said he's naming himself after what he's wearing. It'd be like me. It'd be like somebody saying, "My name is Abercrombie and Finch," because it's on his. Shirt. <laughs> Are you uh, kidding? No, that's what I said. It's, it's on his clothing. Um, but wait, but all these side characters have almost nothing to do. They get virtually no characterization, barely anything to do. They are there to move the plot along, and that's it. And for a passing of the torch story, and for a story that relies so much on the frailty and the um. The fallibility of the big three um, to have Ben Skywalker there and have it not really matter is kind of weird, especially given the fact I don't think it'd be spoiling too much for anybody, especially since the uncorrected proofs we were sent spoiled this inside the freaking dramatist personae um, that the returning character is Vestara. She's about the only character left that could return from Fate of the Jedi. Okay, um, there's there are times where she winds up face to face with Ben. What do they do with moments. it? Freaking nothing. There's no point. And the way she appears in this book seems to have little to no relation to where they left her in Fate of the Jedi. She's going off. There are other Sith out there. You can go off. You could perhaps join the one Sith. Goodbye. Goodbye. And it's... Here she is just trying to get a power base for herself so that maybe she can go back to the Lost Tribe to conquer them as opposed to just going there and being basically disavowed and disliked. What? There's no point in Vestara being in this story at all the way they played it out, especially given how little they underutilize Ben. I was extremely disappointed in how little anybody other than the big three got any play, but at least they let us know ahead of time, this is a big three novel, so I don't know if I should have been surprised or not, but I am shocked at how little he delved into, and there are so many things that are left undone. Um, There's a character that in the middle of a firefight is sent off you know, here, here, go over here, go over here, you know, and you feel like, oh, she's she's on her own part of the mission, and then never shows up again throughout the book. Just gone. Yeah. Just shows up at the very end. Hey, how was that, guys? That was kind of crazy, wasn't it? I don't know. It's like, it's, it's, you're wondering if she's Clark Kent. <laughs> like, like, oh no, it's an emergency. Clark, where did you go? Superman saved the day. Oh, I was in the bathroom, Lois. I, there, there are, don't get me wrong, it was an enjoyable book. Yes. Was it one of the better Star Wars books we've seen in a while? No. Is it one I recommend to everybody? No. Is it one without its flaws? No. Um, is it the home run that I expected from the the last big hurrah of the big three? No. So I guess that's my take before we get into our spoilers. Let's see, when it comes to Vess's character, Ben, I, I enjoyed what little we got. I, I will agree there was very little, but I think for her, the little that we got, it, I thought it served the character. I thought, you know, the last we saw with her, she was going to go off and ship called her a Sith Lord. It was kind of like, okay, is she going to start her own order? And at one moment, she was set to take over the Kref's complete empire. And I was like, oh, man, if she succeeds with this. But then, of course, there's the what the hell moment. And then everything turns. But 
I don't know. I think I think where it leaves her from here is interesting because there is now that that possible Mandalorian connection, which we'll get into later. But I don't know. For me, I enjoyed the book. It's right up until they get into Prime Base. Uh, it, it it went so daft that it's it's kind of like reading Trader for the very first time, where you're like, wait, what in the hell is going on? Um, maybe if you read it a few more times, maybe to get better, but. Honestly, I, I went back to that spot and read it again, and I was still it, it was just the way it was worded and, and the way it was from Han's point of view one minute and then from Luke's or Leia's, you're just like, what is going on? I, I'm confused. These words aren't making sense with the with the plot anymore. Uh, but I don't think it was enough to ruin the book for me. Um, I would still recommend it. I liked it for for the most part. Uh, it continues on the story. I, I burned through this book. I mean, I, I blazed through this book. I think I got it done in, in less than two weeks, which for me lately is dang near impossible. So, I mean, it was an enjoyable read. It just wasn't everything I was expecting. I guess the last thing I would say is is if this is going to be the last hurrah of the EU as we know it, I think that would be a very disappointing thing, especially when you talk about the, the passing of the torch. I mean, we did not really get that. And so if they did decide down the road to do something stupid like cancel or put on hold indefinitely the Sword of the Jedi series, I think that that would be a huge disservice to fandom, to the EU itself. I mean, at this point, it's like go for broke. Write that story, get it out there, tell the story you want to tell, and then let the trilogy do what it's going to do. I mean, I think to hold off on telling good stories because of a potential story and potential conflicts that come down the line when we're dealing in an EU that has always ran with those conflicts anyway, I think that's asinine. I mean, it, it, why? But imagine the retcon if this was it. Well, we never did tell you how we get from Ben Skywalker to Cole and Nat Skywalker. Turns out... There was one more child in between, conceived between scenes during Tahiri and Ben's little trip together. <laughs> I beginning to wonder, though, if, if, if they're pushing Tahiri onto Ben and, and kind of trying to make her a, a romance interest, which is a little ironic with the whole uh, reaching uh, for his lightsaber in the last series. But I, I don't know. I, I just I get back and forth on that aspect of do I want to be the last of the series? I mean, it just it. I can't imagine it ending there. It just does not, it does not feel like an ending. I mean, e even at the time we get to the point where Luke says, you know, pretty much, hey, uh, we're not going to be doing it. I'm like, but Leia's still a knight. Leia's not even a master yet. Leia has so much more to do. Like, I, I don't know. I, I just, I go back and forth with that. It really drives me up a wall because I don't think that just because the, the uh, sequel trilogy is coming down the line, that that's a reason to hold on things. It's just, I don't know. It's right, so a spoiler warning time. Give us our spoiler warning so we can start talking details. All right, Beyonder Sentience of All Ages, consider this your big-time spoiler warning. Bail, bail now, because we're about to make the jump to hyperspace, and here we go. We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. And let me note here, as we're picking up with the this little bit here, that um, there were two things that were fixed, thank goodness, for the print edition that we ran into when we were doing the uncorrected proofs. Um, I had an ebook version that was sent out to me so I could put it on my Kindle app on my iPad as, as opposed to a print uncorrected proof here. But when going through there, you run into, uh, early on in the proof in Chapter 2, uh, Jaina had just turned 33. Which makes zero sense with this being in 45 ABY. 
um, years after the Battle of Yavin. It is now in the final version. It says uh, uh, Jaina was approaching 36. That was a situation where I had had to email the uh, the editor, one of the, well, the guy that we get the the advanced reader copies to, and I emailed Leland Chi directly also, and he emailed back a little while later saying, you know, well, how do they know? You know, have they said anything about having fixed it? Because I know they said that after they got that, they were going to try to fix it. Blah blah blah. So fortunately, that was fixed. Though I find it surprising that nobody caught it to begin with, especially Denning, who's been involved with the characters for a while now and should know when the heck this stuff is taking place. Plus, in the new Dramatis Personae, uh, second from the last, you have Savara Rain, troubleshooter, human female. And I think we're supposed to find, as we read the book, I think we're supposed to be surprised when she winds up revealing herself to be Vestara. Um, but in the Dramatis Personae of the uncorrected proofs copy that was sent out, it says Vestara Kai, a.k.a. Savara Rain, troubleshooter, human female. They give it away in the Dramatis Personae, but they also give it away um, within the book itself because they refer to the character as having a small hooked scar at the corner of an otherwise perfect mouth, which is the scar that a lot of times they use in Fate of the Jedi to draw out the fact that it was Vestara that they were describing. Um, so just right off the bat, it seemed like there were a couple of things that, you know, just goofy little errors that hadn't been caught by Dinning during the reading process. And hopefully, well, actually, fortunately, because it has been, um, whether it was them catching it, me catching it, somebody else catching an email and then from an uncorrected proof, uh, it was corrected for that book. I'm hoping the one that I caught for Kenobi will be fixed by print time. Um, in terms of when Outlander takes place in relation to it. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's, this was an, an unusual one. I was reading it on the, 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 I, the iPad, so I had no idea when it was going to end because it wasn't set up with like regular page numbers being the uncorrected proof file. It almost got sent kind of like just a regular PDF type of file. Um, I find the, the setup interesting. We've got basically a cantina type situation and we meet Omad Kage and Omad Keg is kind of like a young Han Solo. The, the, the Chiloon Rift is a place where you've got all these asteroids that have a lot of minerals in it that can be mined, and he's kind of the daredevil miner because it's very hard to navigate in the Chiloon Rift. The hyperspace lanes change quite often, so he's kind of the daredevil type figure, the, the, the devil-may-care type figure, but at the same time trying to run a business, trying to make a profit. and he's shareholder. Just happens, yeah, he, he happens to be working alongside Lando, um, and I like the fact that, I mean, he doesn't, he's like the other characters. He doesn't get a lot of characterization. He gets more characterization than Ben or Tahiri or Jaina and half the other characters do, but he still kind of gets lost in the shuffle by the end of the book. But I like the fact that we can sort of get a feel for how old Han is and how experienced Han is by seeing Omad. We've got a character who is designed from the get-go in that very first chapter as essentially the counterpoint. You know, if if Han now is freaking ancient, then what about Omad? Well, Omad is kind of like the Han we met in the Most Icely Cantina. Time has passed. And that seems to be an ongoing theme here, which is, you know, time has passed, they're not as young as they used to be, leading up to that being their excuse to be able to to, to step back. Yeah, I liked the the first scene. I mean, it definitely was fun. I I I think one of the things I liked about this book the most was the Sabic hands. I mean, it, 
you know, we see it throughout. I think there was, what, maybe four, at least three games of Sabic played. Uh, but right out the get-go, the, the the cantina feel of the place, the way Omeg was kind of showing up. He wasn't Lando. Han and Leia are kind of, like, doing their, their like, back and forth stuff that they do like i don't quite trust this guy but they're not saying much you know they're like all doing that whole husband wife like i give you the eyebrow and she gives you the uh-huh nod <laughs> you know things like that and they're working you know themselves against him to make sure that he is who he says he is because you know they've been around the block 108 times and they know that that happens lando's probably been jumped and this guy isn't who he says he was so at, at the beginning i'm kind of like okay who is this guy is he gonna be you know is he gonna be tied in with the crefts or you know because i didn't know who the crefts were at this point but i was beginning to think this guy may have been the bag the big bad because he was the shareholder in the the what was it the rift mesh or or whatever their uh communication system is the beacons and all that stuff uh, he had a controlling share in that as well and and so the crefts were trying to kind of force him out of business and they were using the mandalorians in these things called the nargons which were essentially like uh lizards grown over uh like uh, i can't remember what they were called like a, a talloy a certain kind of alloy it's kind of like wolverine's animanium bones with uh, a, a reptile grown around it uh, and they were weird. I mean, they were called biots. And, uh, oh, man, the biot aspect of this had me intrigued. There was a lot of intriguing moments throughout this book. But, you know, th that first chapter was a really fun setup. And then we move into chapter two, which I really enjoyed chapter two. I, I don't know about you, but the, the character uh, Bixen, the, the Togorian uh, Padawan that was mid-exercise playing like a don't break the egg game where he's running through and stuff. I found that scene was probably one of the coolest scenes for me, because it was like you got little references. Uh, you know, there was a sniper, and they they mentioned him as being the order's best sniper instructor, perched up above, shooting down. And then you find out that it's Jagged Fell. You're like, ooh, he's the best sniper the Jedi have, and he's not even force sensitive. Like, yes. And then you also find out that he is their finest commando commander as well. I'm like, wow. You know, Jag's really kind of come into his own with the order, which gets back to that whole passing of the torch and this being the end. Um, isn't he supposed to be an emperor at some point? What the hell? But, you know, that gets back to I want to see a sword book series. But, you know, that whole scene where Bixen's pride uh, and, and they made him start the program over. Uh, there, There's a moment where Coran, he goes, I'd say Bixen is as good as you were. He's talking to Jaina. He's all uh, Bixen's as good as you were at that age, Master Solo. And then Luke, as he puts it, to the other master, he's like, there's a darkness inside him, and the days are gone when the Jedi can afford to train their own enemies. And then, of course, when Bixen gets done with the exercise, Luke has uh, one of the other Jedis from the last book series coming. He's like, shoot down there, you know, and so she shoots, and and Bixen reflects it back, but he sends it back at the masters. You know, he gets kind of pissed off and, and does it. And so when he gets back up there, you know, Jaina is even kind of chastising. He's like, you have too much potential, Bixen, Jaina said, too much. We can't train you only to have you turn to the dark side and become our greatest enemy. I, you know, and I, I love the fact that that is so prevalent to them right now. Like they're not about to screw up again, especially with Jason. And, you know, there were references to that. And I like that Th those small little touches were things that I really enjoyed. But I like the fact that their, their decision is, you know, you can be expelled or you can just start back from scratch. You know, start back at the beginning of your Jedi training. That'd be like me saying, I'm sorry, you failed world history. <laughs> You're just going to have to go back to kindergarten. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, the decision that they make. I mean, it makes sense from a, you know, we want to make sure that he doesn't follow the dark path type of angle, but from a skill standpoint, it doesn't. Um, I, I do agree. The Nargons were made for a pretty interesting enemy. 
although it felt like I had seen it before. The, the metal, you know, on the inside, the metal skeleton definitely felt very Wolverine. We find that all these biots, all these weird cloned beings, whether we're talking Dina Yus, who is supposedly the manager of the mining facility that uh, Lando runs, only to wind up finding that she is a plant there, uh, who is not a plant in a Zon from Farscape sense, but she's like been planted there um, to work yeah, for we the know Crips. she's we know she's planted before we find out she's a biot. I mean, yeah, yeah. we don't even know who. It's just like she was well picked for her position. You're like, uh, wait, but that doesn't sound like Lando picked her. No, it just it's 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 odd though because you take her, you take I, eventually we get a weird clone of young Leia, a clone of young Han. Although he doesn't really get to do much other than sit in a vat. Um, Ohali the Jedi winds up. I think I'm pronouncing her name right. I have to go back and look. Um, yeah, Ohali is is given a clone as well. But it, they do the stereotypical. Well, gee, we've just created a genetically engineered weapon, uh, an army of sorts agents. How do we keep them under control? Well, it's very simple. After we take them out of their birthing chambers, uh, out of the Jim Hadar, we're going to keep them hooked on an enzyme they need to survive, <laughs> yeah. like a Ketracel White. I'm thinking, yeah. haven't I seen this before? Um, I mean, and not just in Star Trek Deep Space Nine, which is where that stuff comes from, but I mean, it's kind of the tried and true trope. Oh, you're going to create someone genetically to be a, a slave for you? Well, you better create some genetic way to keep them under control. It makes logical sense, but it feels very overdone in sci-fi, and here it is again. Um, I will say one thing, though, that seemed as though it was not overdone in Star Wars, uh, and it's something that uh, it was kind of interesting to see here, is one of the ways that the Krefs, the two, it's Marvid and Kratheus Krep is these guys' names, the Kalamai, one of their ways of trying to get at Han, and it struck me in a very 9-11-ish kind of way, um, they, we've, we've seen super weapons before, plenty and plenty of super weapons, and this one has sort of its own super weapon by the end, the base prime and all that stuff, and, and what it's located on it as well. Um, but you know, it's been a while since we saw the Galaxy Gun, the Sun Crusher, the World Devastators, the two Death Stars, and the Prototype, and the Tarkin, etc., etc. Um, it's mostly been powerful enemies in recent books and in recent comics. Here, we get what feels like it should be a super weapon, but it's not, but it certainly has the effect you would expect from something major like that. They have Dina uh, basically sabotage one of the mining stations. The idea is these asteroids are pulled in by tractor beams, and when they get to the right spot, they're able to take them and start mining them and everything. But to begin with, they're basically just charging down, like barreling towards the base, and you've got to make sure you slow them down, otherwise disaster would happen. And since these things have been misaligned, there is an asteroid that just slams down into the mining base. And you would have thought, if this was any other book instead of their last hurrah, that Luke and Leia together would have put their arms out uh, Starkiller style and stopped that asteroid just like Starkiller stopped the Star Destroyer in The Force Unleashed. But no, this is their last hurrah. It's got to be bad for them. So what happens? It slams down, and they barely escape. Han winds up needing a prosthetic eye, or, or sorry, a donor eye afterwards. So he loses yeah. an eye. Leia is in a back-to-tank for a while. Luke is... Uh, uh, I think Luke was out of the picture yet. I don't think he's yeah, shown Luke up yet. Yeah, Luke wasn't there yet. Um, but this thing comes crashing down, and it kills 28,000 people. And in one gigantic explosion, 
just to get at Han. And Han's taken aback by this when he learns that that's why they did this in the first day. It wasn't just to sabotage Lando's operation because they want Lando's part of the business in the Chiloon Rift, which would give them a monopoly over business in the Rift, which is part of their grand scheme of things. But it was to go after Han. And I think yeah, about all the instances... I, I think about all the instances in modern conflict where you have civilians being killed, whether we're talking suicide bombing, whether we're talking about the quasi-suicide bombing of flying planes into buildings like 9-11. Um, and we don't seem to see that a lot in Star Wars. The Clone Wars played around with the idea of, of terrorism a little bit. And we see that somewhat in Star Wars, especially in, in the way that the Empire characterizes the rebels, or the way the Empire uses fear to control. But to see just this one act of outright just, well, it was calculated. What's 28,000 lives when it you know, comes up against getting you, Han? And just the, the, the guilt that he feels over being the one who is, by some extension, kind of a six degrees Kevin Bacon sort of way, responsible for those acts, that really shocked me. And I was very impressed by the fact that Denning was willing to go there. This is a book that doesn't feel like it takes a lot of chances. But in that sense, while I, I guess that's not really a chance per se, it was one of those moments that kind of had me rocking back going, whoa, holy crap, did they really just kill thousands of people simply because two power-mad scumbags want to take out one? You would think that's something we would see more often in Star Wars, these phenomenal vehicles and weapons and such going after you know, Luke or going after Han, that they would just say, you know, let's not, you know, do we send a detachment down to retrieve them? bombard the whole freaking planet. What do I care about the natives if I want to kill Luke or Leia or Ben or Jaina or whoever? But even the bad guys in Star Wars tend to have restraint more than that, whether it logically makes sense or not. Here, these guys don't. They are just about the calculation. Yeah, and that was a great scene. I mean, Denning did a really good job of playing up the peril. I mean, you know, Han, stop, Leia cried. We're too late. Han was already decelerating, braking so hard that Leia had to brace against the dashboard. The fireball continued to swell, blotting out the sky, burning so bright it hurt Leia's eyes, continuing to expand until it touched ground. A white flash filled the dust basin. Leia saw the smoking cones of the smelters tumbling sideways before they were engulfed by a curtain of flame and dust. The curtain rolled out toward the edges of the silver plain, hurtling the white flecks of land speeders and dark polygons of buildings high into the air. It swallowed everything in its path, growing ever higher and brighter as it drew near. Han slammed the land speeder into reverse, then started up the switchbacks backwards, struggling to put some distance between them and the rolling curtain of fire. A pillar of yellow-white flame rose from the impact site, climbing thousands of meters into the sky before the atmosphere finally grew thin enough for it to boil across the heavens. A wall of billowing dust began to climb toward them, and Leia knew the legendary Solo Luck had finally run out. No way, she thought. No way could they outrun the shockwave. She laid her hand over Hans, then reached out in the force and pushed. The wave hit. The landspeeder bucked hard, and the world shattered. I, that moment where she put her hand on his hand. Like, I, I knew it wasn't going to happen, but Denny did a good job. I started to question it. And then, like you said, Han loses the eye. They were both in comas for a while by the time Luke gets there. I don't know. I, I thought that that added a level of evil to the brothers that was fitting to wanting to make them the big bad in this case. I mean, they, they had a very mafia feel. I mean, it was kind of like the, the business that was running the get, which was, uh, I, I believe it was galactic exploitation technologies, 
uh, and Get was the big bad. They were like the mafia group, but like this silent mafia group, which was a uh, galactic something or other, galactic syndicated. Uh, and that was the one that the Krefs ran. But it was like such a shadow secret thing. It was kind of like, you know, you, you can't know about it. Or or if you've ever read or seen uh, the Red Riding trilogy, it's like the first part of that where everybody is kind of in on it because that's what they've been doing. They've been grooming these people and slipping them in. And because these biots aren't like droids and they're not quite like clones, they're a little of both. It allows them to have control, but at the same time, it allows these beings to kind of have a force presence, which was like a, whoa, what the heck moment. And it does seem like the names are kind of reversed here. You know, the shadowy one behind the scenes is just Galactic Syndicated. The one that they have as their public face is Galactic Exploitation Technologies. Really? I don't know about, you know, the Star Wars galaxy, but in, you know, modern English language... Exploitation, even if we're talking about the exploitation, the use, the taking of resources and using it for another purpose, um, exploitation kind of comes off as having a bad ring to it. It's a negative name. Yeah. So, and, and if we're really going by the idea that this is somewhat of an Occupy Wall Street type of mentality to this, of, of big business, this is the, they're, they're evil, they are bad, et cetera, et cetera, kind of feel to somewhat of this book, um, you know, naming the company something where the acronym is Git kind of fits into that as well. It just, it's kind of one of those, gee, nobody thought anything screw was going on with the one with exploitation and Git in their name. What were they going to call it? You know, we are Evil Inc. <laughs> I can see that. I mean, chapter six, I, I like that, you know, they, it starts out there in the comas. Luke shows up. But I think that, that Denning could have played with Luke's point of view a little more, like more of maybe his reactions to finding out they were in comas and stuff. I mean, we did get a, a moment where uh, Lando's talking to him and he goes, uh, Kratheus and Marvard both, I'm going to hunt them down and I'm going to put a pair of disruptor beams right through their heads, maybe three or four. Woods like, you have a disruptor? And Lando, like, he's, Lando shoots him a glower. I can afford to buy one, you know. <laughs> I mean, it looks like noticing the rage of Lando, but I really felt like it was a missed opportunity not going a little sooner of that meeting of when Lando and Luke first meet up, coming at it from Luke's point of view, like going into the room, talking to Lando, finding out your sister is in a coma, your best friend slash brother-in-law is in a coma. I I, I think, you know, Denny did a good job in the scene before that of building up the impact. I would have liked to have seen some more from Luke and what he was feeling there. And that was what I had an issue of with the bouncing points of view is like one minute you're getting a lot of detail. And then the next minute you're, he just skips over it. Like, okay, well what happened to that insight? I mean, we were getting insight just two pages ago and now we're just going to just close down on that and move the plot forward again. And there was a lot of back and forth with that, which sometimes it worked. Sometimes it didn't. One of the other things that just, I've mentioned this a little bit that didn't feel like, well use of the characters was, again, the issue with Savara and Murtagev. For Vestara, okay, our motivation for her, and this is found on the bottom of page 249, uh, Vestara had nowhere to run. Her time with the Jedi had made Vestara Kaya pariah among her own people. She did not dare return to the Lost Tribe until she had enough power to rule them, and she could never win that power by doing the smart thing. And... It's the idea that she's trying to get all the power of this syndicate into her hands. Number one, the last time we saw her wasn't Chip, which does show up here in this story, because um, that's what one of the things that Jason and Tahiri were chasing after that brought them into the area, and it's uh, uh, Ship does show up a couple times in attack, and Ship is apparently how Vestara and Murtagev managed to escape. But, ben. What did I say? Ben, you said Jason. Oh, yeah, Ben. Um, but... 
you know, last time we saw her, wasn't she with Ship heading off to find the one Sith? Why isn't she no, with them? No, 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 she wasn't. Uh, she was going to go to the one Sith, and Ship told her pretty much they're going to kill you, and he dubbed her a Sith Lord, and he was going to take her to join up. Oh, wait, no, you did say one Sith, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, so, you're right. She so was going to go and talk like, to the one Sith. It's like, oh, well, she just decided not to, so she's going to do this instead. We get no reason. That, that is the only moment of motivation for that character in the entire book. We get no reason for her to actually be doing what she's doing. Why isn't she with the One Sith? Is she working for the One Sith and trying to conquer the Lost Tribe and bring the Lost Tribe into the One Sith or something? We have no idea. Merjagev, for her part, that is Boba Fett's granddaughter, is in this. Um, she is working for the Krebs. She and the Mandalorians. They are handled pretty well in that they're working for the money. Um, the money is good. If the money... If the danger goes up compared to what was put in the original contract, they negotiate for more. That works really well. I like the fight scenes between, say, her and Han. There's a point at which Han, um, she's one of the ones playing Sabacc, and Han, uh, as Barden uh, attacks her, uh, Han flips the table, dumps, jumps under the table or ducks uh, beneath uh, the table, reaches out, yeah. knowing that she's got a knife or a blaster on her or both, grabs her leg, pulls out a blade, cuts into her leg, and she's limping for the entire rest of the story, uh, and pulls uh, and cuts the, the blaster from her leg so she can take, he can take that and use it. Um, that's used well, but her See, I, didn't, I didn't like that part. I, I thought that that was kind of chump on her part. Like, she's just sitting there. Han's been pretty much strapped to a, a medical bed slash wheelchair and has a bunch of needles, and he manages to slowly slide under, pop all those needles out, crawl underneath the table to where she's at, and then stab her and stuff. I'm like, get out of your chair and kick him in the head, woman. What the hell? You're a Mandalorian. <laughs> but isn't that once Barden is starting crap and force-pushing and doing all kinds of force-lightning or something? I mean, Barden is already kind of going off the deep end at this point to cover that. What gets me about Myrta is that she seems somewhat naive. Like, the whole reason why she takes this job and is unwilling to leave it, no matter how crazy it gets is that the Krebs have promised her with no evidence whatsoever that they're actually going to do it. Um, that they're going to help get rid of the nanotech that's keeping her and Boba from being able to return to Mandalore. Um, at least that, though, gets a couple of different mentions, a few different mentions, as opposed to Vestar's motivation, which gets almost none, just gets that one brief one there. Um, but I mentioned Bardun, and this is where things get into the weird, screwy, what is Troy Denning doing kind of area. but. It works to a degree. I will say that uh, as nebulous as the ending of this book is, it's nothing compared to the Dark Man and all that vision crap that's been done before and reinterpreted over and over again each time the story changed. Um, we meet Bardun, who, and I'm saying that right, right? Bardun, B-A-R-D-U-N. Yeah, that's what I was calling him, Bardun. Uh, Bardun is a Mandalorian, and Bardun was sent, thanks to Savara slash Vestara apparently opening the gate, sent into this monolith, this thing they call the Artifact with a capital A. Apparently, the Krebs have discovered basically what looks like one of the Thoyor or a Mortis-style monolith. It's not Mortis, unfortunately. Well, uh, now, how do we know it's not? I mean, granted, the characters say, said it, but there's no authority in any of these characters. No, but, I mean, it doesn't have any resemblance on the inside to what we saw True. with Mortis <laughs> either. True, um, but Mortis also was a shifting place. Like, I don't trust anything I saw in Mortis. I'm beginning more and more to think Mortis and those dang monoliths was the biggest screw-up Lucas ever brought into Star Wars. Hang on one second. I need to find... What is that called? Okay. So anyway, so they find this 
thing, whatever it is, Thoyor, Mortis, something else, it's this monolith-type thing in space, and it's located inside an area, or actually creating an area, inside the Chiloon Rift called the Bubble of the Lost. It's sort of like the Bermuda Triangle of the Chiloon Rift, which is by itself sort of a Bermuda Triangle-type place. And it's, it's warping time around it, which I thought was kind of cool. So the relative positions of places within this bubble are still correct, but being able to pinpoint its location compared to the outside, very difficult, and it allows the crefts to do more work in a shorter time relative to outside the bubble. They could work uh, for, you know, a year in our time, but to them it's more like, you know, four or five, so they're getting a lot more work done, a lot more progress done relative to the galaxy they're trying to control. And on this monolith, they've built their base, base prime. Base prime isn't the monolith, but it might as well be because it's it's based, it's like landed there. Um, but there's this weird, I mean, I kind of pictured it almost like the transportation rings in Stargate. There's like this circular hatch. And if someone is force sensitive already, they can step on the hatch or be touching someone who's stepping on the hatch. And it sort of becomes translucent, transparent, immaterial, incorporeal, whatever. And you wind up finding yourself inside the monolith. And if you are someone, we get the sense at the beginning that if you're not Force-sensitive, going in makes you come back Force-sensitive. Only in Barden's case, he's Force-sensitive, and he seems to be power-mad and freaking insane. Um, this Mandalorian Force-user, I think it's a nice knock on the Mandalorian Knights concept that I found so bizarre that seems like that was the only thing Knights of the Old Republic War was based around. Yeah, um, at first I thought it was a buy-it thing. I thought he was a buy-it, and then you mm -hmm. find out later, no, he's not a buy-it. And I was like, oh. It's just a, a batty Mandalorian. Um, but they think that somehow they, that they, the Crips, um, they could solve this problem and they could go as non-Force-sensitive users into it themselves using either Vestara or a bizarre biot of Vestara with a gigantic head, um, like mixed with Columi DNA and such. They could get inside and they themselves could become, yeah, they themselves could become super, you know, uh, super, you know, brainy, Force-using, galaxy-conquering Columi. Um, we realize by the time we get near the end that it's not so much that it's letting them use the force per se. But getting inside, there are these living shadows, these dark side spirits that are in there, and they will attack you like piranha whenever you first arrive. And you basically have a choice as you are being worn down of either accepting their help, so to speak, or not. But accepting means, as... We see in plenty of stories out of mythology and science fiction. Accepting means essentially you're selling your soul. You are taken over by these spirits. And they use your body as a vessel to be able to escape from the monolith. And that's what Barden was. Um, but it opens up this door, this the whole fact that they're still searching for more just with the quest knights and everything, which Ohali is one of. Um, it sort of opens this door to the mystical side of what is otherwise a pretty hard sci-fi story. But once we're in the monolith, things go nuts. It's all perception-based. It's all sort of in-the-mind type of stuff, um, which I think is where it, it it fits with the story. But it certainly feels as though the last couple of chapters are almost like a out of left field. They're a curveball. You know, pick your metaphor um, or your simile, as I said, like. that. It just it comes out of nowhere, it feels like. You're kind of like, whoa, what are we seeing here it goes from hard sci-fi technology and that sort of thing into hard sci-fi you know metaphysic type stuff
yeah, it got over my head super fast. Uh, you know, I, I was mentioned in the Sabbath games and chapter nine was probably one of my favorite scenes. Uh, this is that's a moment where Han, I believe, escapes by the end of the chapter. But this is that game where things start to go crazy. He's strapped in They're They're basically mapping his reactions to things to make the Han buy it more like Han so they can slip him in or, or I'm assuming slip him in down the road somewhere. Uh, yeah, they that, never that's... do quite explain what they're doing with all these buyouts of young versions of our heroes do they yeah, or, or where they got their dna to create creepy leia i mean when did they get that <laughs> i'm like okay obviously it must have been dina that took it or something oh yeah no no she did take it yeah after the wreck she swapped up leia's blood there we go i was wondering about that and there was little things like that where it was a quick reference that if you're not paying attention you will miss it but while they're playing this game they're, they're really trying to get these high and low reactions out of han and so instead of playing for stakes, they're playing for questions and for pain, uh, which is where the, the possession of Baradan takes a creepy toll because whatever is in him is possessed on torturing on the dark side on fear. And so he's raising the stakes like I'll raise you an eyeball and, and, and things like and that. Explain what for those who haven't read the book yet, what does playing for the pain mean? I mean, that that's like instead of cashing in the chips at the end of the hand, you like Han, uh, he when he raises one, he raises Baradan death and he goes, well, you can't kill him. But he goes, no, I don't want to kill him. I want you to feel the sensation of drowning. And it's like, whoa, wait a minute here. And so like one of them there, they raise an eye. Another one is like searing pain. And so at the end of the hand, whatever you bet, if you lost, you have to pay up. It's kind of like playing German spoons. I mean, I, I remember playing that as a kid, my hand just getting beat all the heck, you know, but. Some of the questions are just insane. Uh, uh, Han's playing it well. I, 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 that was the thing I liked the most was Han's point of view. Like, there's a moment where Han is going to either fold or bluff, and he bases it off of his watch if it was going to be even or odd. And that was the whole point of is like he's not playing the game; he's playing the players. And I like that they really get into that side of things as well. That you see where he's coming from in it. Uh, but when they get to the questions. Oh, gosh, the questions were so deep. I mean, let's see. Where's the first one here? I was wrong. It was actually chapter 13. Uh, in, in Kratheus, he goes, uh, yes, I call. And then if I win, my question will be this. How did you feel when Chewbacca died? And, I mean, I love the fact that we get Han's point of views on this. He doesn't answer the questions because the hand hasn't played. But they continue to do this round-robin sort of thing with, with their Sabbath game. I, I'm, not, I'm not the best on poker, so... I don't know exactly which game of poker they were kind of playing in that regards, but they kept raising the bet, raising the bet, getting a couple more chips and stuff. Uh, then he, he continues on. He goes, uh, it's all, if the first question had been painful, the second one felt like a vibroblade sliding into Han's gut. My second question is this. Why didn't you mourn your son Anakin's death as deeply as you mourned that of your Wookiee friend? And you're just like, holy cow. You know, these questions are deep, but I mean, they're definitely getting their money's worth in the aspect of raising and lowering Han's, you know, aspect of things. And Han starts figuring it out too because he goes, so my bet, why all these electroids and probe needles? And then Kratos, he figures out, he's like, very clever, Captain Solo. You've been playing me instead of your hand. And he's like, is that your next question? Of course not. That was an observation, not an inquiry. My third question is this. Why did you love your son Jason less than you loved Anakin? So it's like, in a sense, all his questions are basically like, why did you love the Wookiee more than you did your own children? And it's like, oh, man, these questions that Han isn't really faced, but you, the reader, have been wanting to see. I mean, you saw a little bit of it in Millennium Falcon. They, they do a couple references here or there. But this is right, boom, in his face. And that was just deep. 
And it's funny, it's, like, it's almost like Denny coming out and saying, Hey guys, remember? I'm the one that killed Anakin. I'm the one that killed Jason. Hey Han, how do you feel about that? Yeah, exactly. Uh, there's another great part on page uh, 125 where they're talking, uh, Luke and Leia, they're reaching out. I think that was the thing I liked the most in this book was Luke and Leia. Seeing those two as a Jedi team. And of course, unfortunately, this will be the last mission, apparently, we're ever going to watch that. But it was finally cool to finally get to see it. Uh, but there's a moment where, you know, Leia's looking for Han's presence. She's like, found him. He's on the moon. This was one of those rare times when Leia wished Han was Force-sensitive so he could feel her presence nearby and know she was coming for him. How does he seem? Luke asked. Drugged, she said, and pissed off. Luke smiled. Good. Pissed off is when Han's at his best. <laughs> I just, there's a lot of fun humor like that throughout this book. I mean, Denny has a lot of really good moments in here. I mean, for me, the ending was so weird that I think that's my own ma my major negative is just that. I really enjoyed the heck out of the book and, and the ups and downs and the insights of the characters and stuff like that. Yes, they could have done a little more with a lot of the characters. Yes, they could have done more with the next generation, maybe added more to their plot. But the overall feel of the book was good. And the ending is, I'm not sure it's bad. I actually kind of like the ending. It's just that it comes kind of out of nowhere. And at the same time, it's sort of, it's hard to follow for lack of a better term. They, it gets very nebulous in its descriptions because, oh, we're on a metaphysical plane. They go inside the monolith, and it's basically the Krebs have said yes to the power, so they are all powered up, including the one that's been beaten up and eventually gets shot in the head. I mean, uh, they're, they're being reanimated, and so they're like zombie columnide to an extent, and they just keep coming and coming and coming and attacking. Han has no force sensitivity, and he says no to the spirits, so there's not a whole lot he can do. Leia and Luke basically are going all Anakin as he's dying in Star by Star, in that they are sort of luminous beings. They yeah. are superpower in here, fighting against the darkness, like super Jedi versus super dark side spirits in the body of the weird big brain guys. Um, and you get this fight in which, it's interesting that Luke, um, he's been suffering from this wound to his chest from beyond shadows in the battle with Abeloth. He is glowing except for that part, which really never gets much explanation or expounding upon um, well, i always assume that that was where the dark side that she reached in she put some darkness in him or something yeah I mean, that's, that... what, that's what i'm figuring it's just kind of one of those they they emphasize it several times in the book but then they never do anything with it other than hey look that's the part that's not glowing um but you get this knockdown drag out battle and in the end han actually has an important role to play he's not the one doing the battling for the entire time but I like the fact that it comes back to Han, and unfortunately, it, it's a really cool, underused sci-fi trope, the way that this plays out and, and Han's role in it. But it's something that has been used, while underused, it was used fairly recently in something that I'm pretty passionate about in terms of sci-fi fandom, and there was a part of me that went, oh, they're doing that. Um, it gets to a point where Leia and Luke have been seriously injured within this weird force universe thing, wherever they are, whatever dimension or whatever it is you want to call it, they are inside uh, the monolith, a.k.a. Super Huge Waru, because weren't they inside a different dimension there? Um, Pretty much. And basically, in order to get Leia uh, healed and bring her back to herself instead of letting her just fade into the force and die, Han has to sort of Remind her who she is. You know, talk to her about the carbon freezing. Talk to her about the events of Return of the Jedi. Some of the events since then. Talk to her about Alana. The more he talks about what they've been through, 
The sum of their shared experiences are what causes the love of him to kind of rise to the surface. The realization of who she is, who they've sort of made each other to be, rises to the surface and it brings her back to herself. She's not dying or fading away into the force. She is solidly her again and they're ready to escape and live out the rest of their lives. I like the way it works and it's a very poignant moment. It leaves you kind of going, aww. But... It reminds me, and I think anybody who reads this who's a fan of Doctor Who is going to think of the same thing. The end of The Big Bang, where the Doctor is apparently wiped from existence, it seems like, but because Amy Pond could remember the true reality, everything seems to have been brought back, except the Doctor. And how does she bring him back? By remembering him, right? I remember you. I remember. I brought the others back. I can bring you home too. Raggedy Man, I remember you and you are late for my wedding. So I remember she ends the wedding word oh, yeah. very odd. But it's basically that. It's that applied to Star Wars. And it's cool and it's interesting, but I think there's the unfortunate element that we just got something like that in probably the, the other of the, of, I guess, the three giant sci-fi franchises, Star Trek, Star Wars, and Doctor Who, especially across the pond, um, growing bigger in the U.S., that it felt like been there, done that. Even though it was a very poignant moment, it still didn't have the freshness and the vitality I expected from it because it felt like something that could very easily have been lifted from Doctor Who because we just seen it. Uh, and this was an episode that had just aired in June of 2010. But in Doctor Who time, that's almost nothing because of how short the seasons are and how long there is between them. So, I don't know. I, it just struck me as a very familiar moment, for lack of a better term. Yeah, see, I've not gotten that deep into Doctor Who. I did know the scene you were talking about because I was trying to watch when it went from one Doctor to the other to kind of figure out what the heck was going on without spoiling myself too much. Uh, there was a moment, though, before all that happened where I felt like Leia was going to a very dark place. I mean, I, I granted, I liked the action. I liked this version of Leia, the Jedi in, in action. Uh, Leia advanced, spinning and leaping, her body bent and pivoted as she sidestepped, shrieking mini-rockets and ducked, hissing flechettes. And her lightsaber wove a basket of color as she batted cannon bolts back towards her shadow-cloaked attacker. She was one with the Force, her luminous golden body and eddy whirling in its wild current, her entire being a maelstrom of cold resolve and focused rage, of a single, all-consuming purpose, to kill. I, that was a very dark paragraph for me, and that just jumped out. It was like, whoa, like, I don't know. It, it just seemed like that was like a very bad place for her to be, and that was just totally flossed over. It was like, okay, well, we're just going to continue on. Uh, but yeah, Han was definitely the anchor, but I, I was kind of thrown off by the fact that, okay, Leia couldn't remember who she was, but Luke seemed to be perfectly back to normal. I mean, obviously this must be why he is the grandmaster and she's still just a Jedi Knight when her own daughter is even a master. But that, that gets me to that aspect of, you know, they're going to retire. And I'm like, but Leia's just getting started, man. She's not even a master yet. Like, I, I don't know. I've been waiting to see her become a master. So that didn't quite sit so well with me. One of the things when they were inside the monolith, though, that really tripped me out was the wounds that they were getting. You know, you'd mentioned that Catharus uh, had grown back uh, the tail, the tentacles, and all that other stuff. Luke takes two blaster bolts to the neck and grows these yellow eyes. 
Han has a leg get almost blasted off, and he has a Wookiee leg. Uh, he had his guts, like, translucent material. Leia's got scales. Like, what in the heck was going on? Granted, Luke explained it, that the Force was so strong that it healed immediately, but it didn't always heal to form. But I was immediately going, now, what's going to happen when they're going to get out? But, of course, when they get out, everything goes back to normal, pulling mm-hmm. the classic Mortis, like, oh, this never happened. What's funny is the... Star Wars doesn't usually get particularly brutal in its in its weapons. And we're going to see that a little bit when we talk about uh, Dawn of the Jedi Into the Void because it's swords, not lightsabers. But for as violent and graphic as some of the violence is in this, compared to most other Star Wars stories, most other Star Wars stories would be primetime television, and this at times feels like Tarantino. Oh, I could see that 100%. Now, question I have, I guess, for you, because uh, I was trying to wrap my head around it, was with the Biots. Um, the Force-sensitive Biots, I believe they were the Tier 2 line, uh, were all going crazy. Obviously, you know, the same issue that all cloning Force-sensitives had. But I was wondering, if these guys would have gotten a Yasumiri, and I'm probably saying that wrong, like Thrawn used in the Heir to the Empire trilogy, and did all their cloning processes in the middle of one of those bubbles, would they have then had a successful cloned by it that was able to use the force and not be mad? No idea. But it didn't seem like the reason why they they could use the force made them mad. It was the fact that the way they got it was like they grew them, and the way they got the force was something to do with the artifact slash monolith slash whatever, which means those dark side spirits. If I remember right, the was it the O Ohali. Uh, what they call it? What did you call her? Ditto. Holly too. Yeah, he yeah, called her Ditto. ditto. Um, she was just kind of like when she was there. It seemed like um, it didn't seem like the biots themselves were perfected in terms of that process. It wasn't that they were just going insane. They just they weren't they weren't quite all there. I mean, it's like like Leia, the biot Leia, when we see her briefly. And I must say, the biot Leia, biot Han. It's interesting to see Han's reaction to that. But at the same time, it's kind of like, okay, and what purpose were they going to serve? Yeah. Why do you need the buyouts of them? Why do you need multiple buyouts of them? Are you really going to try to replace Han and Leia out there in the galaxy at large? Too bad, because they're retiring. Well, that uh, would have been a cool yeah. plot twist if they'd have, like gone into one of their rooms, like maybe Marvid's room, and, oh, hey, here's a whole plot where they were going to swap out Luke and Leia and Han and take over the Jedi, too. I mean, they could have easily added something like that. And yet, not so much. I mean, it just... And it's... And that's the thing. There's so many just either missed opportunities or parts of this that don't feel like they were fleshed out enough. Um, one of them, and this would be sort of a retroactive fleshing out, not something that could have been done. But a lot of times in Star Wars, we have these instances, especially in the Bantam era, where it's, really? Where did that come from? Why wasn't that mentioned before? Oh, because even though this is being written to take place in a time before other novels, it's something that is being written after those other novels so no one knew about it. Like, you know, well, why don't they mention... You know, Mortis in other stuff. Well, because it wasn't produced until late in the Clone Wars uh, cartoon series. Or uh, why is it that in the Thrawn trilogy they don't mention how Coruscant was taken? Well, because the X-Wing books were written later. Well, here we have this huge conspiracy to take over the galaxy, and we're only hearing about it for the very first time in this book. It would have been nice if they had sort of tied it into some of the nefarious things we've seen in previous books or book series, but they don't. So it's just all of a sudden it's, surprise, there's another supervillain group out there, albeit different than the others to a degree, um, 
you just have to accept that they've been there all along and nobody's done squat about it or brought it to the attention of the Jedi, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, they could have easily had where with, with the Lost Tribe of the Sith taking over Coruscant and stuff that this company could have had a hand in helping them find their place. They could have easily done something like that. Yeah, and instead all we get is, well, since they didn't anticipate Abeloth and the Lost Tribe taking over Coruscant, they lost a bunch of money in their investments. Okay. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> so well, again, there's the aspect of Alani when, when Han and her are running through, and he just dumps her in the Biot back to tank for no reason that I could think. Of. I mean, I kept thinking originally, like, okay, he must be doing that so the chasers go past her and she can escape and try to go get Jedi help, but they didn't do anything with it. So it was like, what in the hell? I, I still don't know why she got into that. What Han's plan for her getting in there was? It was never described, never explained. Yeah, I mean, it just sort of feels as though, I don't know, there, there were elements that were not fully baked. And that's the thing that you've brought up quite a bit in terms of Denning as a closer. Denning is great at setting up weird stuff, especially metaphysical stuff, that pays off later. Um, Denning, though, when it comes to wrapping up a series, has been somewhat weak. He is strong with what he does, but he leaves a lot of stuff out, leaves a lot of loose ends there, doesn't deal with other things, kind of tangentially hits certain things. Some characters don't get their full due. And here, he's writing a standalone novel, but it is, in effect, a wrap-up to this era, a wrap-up to these characters' adventures, and in some degree, kind of an epilogue to Fate of the Jedi. And here we are with the loose ends and the unanswered questions and the characters given short shrift again. Yeah, there's a moment where I think in the middle of the battle, Marvid and Luke are going at it, and Marvid uh, launches some force energy at him. I think this is where Luke has his epiphany that we see at the end of the book. It's all, then a searing agony washed over him as the wave of force energy took him too, at once burning his body and healing it, devouring him and renewing him. Luke hung in that last moment, caught between life and death for an eternity. He was at the end of his life and at the beginning drowning in agony and filled with bliss. And he began to see that this was the essential nature of the Force. The Force was life, and life was growth. And nothing new, and nothing grew that did not change. And change was destruction. That was why the dark side existed. Life bore death. Death nourished life. Destruction came before rejuvenation. And pain came before healing. The dark side was as necessary to life as the light side was. Without it, verdant worlds would grow stagnant. Galactic empires would rule forever. Luke saw all that and more. Saw that conflict was as necessary to progress as was harmony. That suffering was essential to wisdom as was joy. Perhaps there was no pure good. No absolute evil. There was only life. Only change and growth. Suffering and joy. Death and rebirth. There was only the force. And... You know, later he'll he'll go on about how he's, you know, come to the conclusion that they need to step down. But I kind of get out of that that he just realized that basically everything was hopeless and that all he could ever do was stand in the way. But now he's got people that are trained that can stand in the way of the darkness and constantly do that that balance dance. Um, you know, that, that was an interesting part. But I think for me, the part about this book that I loved the most was uh, chapter 26. The beginning where it's Han's point of view, right before Han finds Leia's uh, force ghost. Uh, you know, at this point, he thinks they're dead. When the haze closed in again and Han remained alone, he began to rush through the fungi forest, calling for his lost wife and his best friend, searching for the spot where they had vanished. 
where they had no doubt sacrificed themselves to stop yet another evil from entering the galaxy. And for what? Luke and Leia had spent their entire lives fighting why? To defend a government that had turned its back on the Jedi Order? To bring peace to a galaxy that valued it too little and would never have it? Han shook his head. No. Luke and Leia had devoted their lives for one thing. Fighting the power of the dark side. It was that simple. Wherever the dark side rose, wherever the Sith had dared showed themselves, there Luke and Leia had rushed. Never hesitating, never flinching. It had been their destiny to shepherd the galaxy into a new era of hope. And not once had they shrunk from the call. Now that destiny would pass to someone else because Luke and Leia were gone. Han understood that. They had become one with the Force and Han expected that he would be joining them soon. He wasn't sad or frightened or even sorry. He just wanted to hold Leia's hand one more time to look into her brown eyes and see her smile again. Then it occurred to Han that he might be dead already or dead again or still dead. In this place, it was hard to know. He stopped walking and turned in a circle, searching for some sign of Luke or Leia. For some hint that he would not spend eternity without them. He saw nothing but fawns and ivory pillars streaked with brown, smelled nothing but the muskiness of forest, heard nothing but the shadows whispering around him, offering to help, aching to devour him. Han dropped to his knees. Ah, oh, Leia, he said. I wish I could have gone with you. And that's when she comes towards him. I mean, that moment, like, I, I don't know, it gives you an idea of what's going on inside there, of, of the, the death and life and the chaos for the reader. I mean, because you go into that moment and it's just like, it's this and it's that. It's There is no dark side. There is a dark side. It's just that confusing. It's like Traitor all over again in just the last three chapters of the book. You're like, wait, I'm confused. Or as Vestara says when she saw the bias of herself mixed with uh, Mama Kref's blood, what the hell? But at least, and I know we're going a little bit long here, at least it gives us uh, a last weird kind of super force blowout to be the wrap-up for Luke, Han, and Leia, and gives us a chance to see Han somehow involved in something like that. Of course, the ending, and bear in mind, they are really, really old, right? I mean, Han at this point is 74. Um, Luke and Leia are 64. Lando is 76 at this point. They're getting kind of up there and whatnot, kind of long in the tooth. And... I think it's funny that after all the knockdown, drag out craziness, the ending we get, the epilogue, puts him in a cantina back in the Red Ronto from the beginning of the book, has Tahiri and Ohali and Ben and Luke and uh, Jaina and Jag and the solos, and they're all kind of together, and they're all talking about what's coming next and how Luke plans on retiring or taking a retreat, just kind of stepping back from things because supposedly the Jedi Order is strong and vigorous, as he says, and so on. Um, and they end with a toast, right? Luke tries to do one to good friends. Uh, that's it? After all that build-up, that's your big toast? Uh, Lando adds in, I thought it was simple and eloquent. How about this? To good friends, good times, and new journeys. To which Luke replies, as the last lines of the book, to new journeys, and may the Force be with us all. And I couldn't help but think, as I read that, that this doesn't end with the iris out, it's a book that basically ends with It's Cheers. <laughs> anyway, it just it's uh, so true. It's definitely an 
odd one, but it ends on the right kind of ending, I think, for this to be them heading off into the sunset. Well, and you talk about age and Han's age, especially. I mean, when Luke comes to his epiphany, is is it just me or is Han the only one that's like, don't you dare say old? I mean, it will be good to leave here, Luke allowed, but we can never go back. Not truly. No, Leia agreed. She and Luke shared a knowing look, which vanished almost before Han caught it. Then she added, not to the way things were. Whoa, guys. Han didn't like the turn of the conversation was taking. This place didn't change us that much, but it did change us, Luke said. If only because it opened our eyes to something that's been happening for a while now. Opened our eyes to what? Han demanded. If you say I'm getting old, someone's going to get blasted. <laughs> Which I think is great. It's like, Han's not ready to, to, to retire yet. And Leia smiled. It's not about age, Han. Her eyes were filled with joy and sadness and contentment with longing and acceptance. It's about stepping back for a while. For a while, huh? <laughs> Han scowled. Who needs to step back? I do, Leia said. She shook his hand. We do. We spent a lifetime battling to make the galaxy a better place. But life is about more than fighting, Han. There needs to be time and rest and love and happiness. Exactly, Luke said. Life is like the Force. It needs balance. The Force needs us to take a rest, Han scoffed. That's what you're telling me? More or less, Luke paused and looked into the trees for a moment, then said, Maybe there was a time when we had to keep fighting because there were so few of us. But the Jedi Order is strong now, and we have to let others take the lead. So it can grow even stronger. Wait, it's strong now? I thought earlier in the book it was stretched so thin it was at the breaking point. Oh, wait, we're going to say that that was uh, Marvin and Catharis's point of view, aren't we? Okay, maybe that's how we get around that. that I don't know. That's where I, I have a hard time with this just being the end. It's like, I, I want more. You know, I, I, I need my Sword of the Jedi. I need to know that Jaina is going to start the Imperial Knights. I want to see Kakruk in a book. No, my EU cannot end with this. Hey, it could be worse. Granted, we get that element. We get the fact that we don't know what more what, what that monolith was other than just Luke saying, you know, maybe it's better we don't know and fading off into the sunset. But would you rather there be yet another time where they tell us it's the passing of the torch. I mean, if we wait too long, the next time they try to do that, some 20, 30 years down the road, Han is going to be Grandpa Simpson. Yeah. What? <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah. Yeah. I shot first. I shot second. Hell, I shot both. Was Greedo even there? I don't know. <laughs> oh, I can see that. <laughs> well, well, then what they need to do is when they put out sword, they don't say it's a handing of the torch, they go, the torch is in the next generation's hand. Witness in Sword of the Jedi. I don't know. I, I, I guess, for me, that whole passing of the torch, I, I think of it as a relay race. I mean, you know, you don't hand the torch off to somebody and then, okay, well, did that, did the torch make it in their hand? I don't even know. But at the end of this book, we have the, the realization that we need to hand this off to the next guy that's running the leg of the race, and we watch him reach out, but we don't actually watch the other leg of the race grab the baton and go running with it. And to me, that's not passing the torch. That's extending your hand. And I, I don't know. I think that's where, for me, I have an issue with this, is that it didn't really feel like it was a passing of the torch. That that term has been used way too much for the EU at this point. Uh, and I, and I, I worry about the fact that they are using real-world things to determine what they're going to do in the EU. I mean, for me, I am ecstatic that there is going to be a sequel trilogy. But I'm angry as hell that they're going to put off putting out more EU books, books that they've already told us we're going to get because of it. That is asinine. 
That is stupid. That's bad marketing. I don't care if the trilogy that comes out destroys my EU. I'm actually for it. Let it stand on its own. If it's going to stand on its own, keep these books coming out. I, I'm just, I don't know. Even if they do the thing where we're going to do the shuffle, I mean, which obviously that must be the one that they're really leaning for if they're going to hold these books. Well, let's hold until we can do the shuffle. We know what we're shuffling. I, I just don't like that. I, I mean, I think that the one thing about this book that was hard to swallow was the Mortis angle, that aspect that Lucas gave us in the Clone Wars. I, I just... Everything about Mortis is such a hard swallow, what it does to balance and everything. It's like, that is the that is the holiday special that, that Lucas gave us right before he sold Star Wars. It was like he gave us the holiday special somewhere at the beginning, and then he gave us Mortis at the end just to screw with everything that has been out there and established. Uh, I, I don't know. The Mortis aspect is the hardest swallow because, like, like you said at the end, we don't even know if it was Mortis. We don't know if it was a Yothor. We don't know a lot of things. We just know it's there. It wasn't destroyed. They've now got repeater beacons to warn the Jedi if somebody ever tries to get in the thing again. It's still there. It, like Ableth, is still there. Ah, what the heck is going on with these books? Luke, with Mortis, Lucas did that to himself. I mean, they're, they're still arguing about, do you believe Anakin really is the chosen one in episode three? When, if you take Mortis's word for it, not only was he the chosen one, he said no to the job he was offered to be the chosen one and bring balance. So they should all be saying, yeah, he was the chosen one, little little punk who didn't bother to take the job. See, you refer to the prophecy of the one who would bring balance to the Force. Nobody said he was going to slap the hand away when offered the chance to bring balance. Man, that stinks. You know, I'm going to bring in righteous anger and blah, blah, blah. Um, the Sith version was, you know about the guy that's going to bring balance to the Force by slacking in the job and saying, nah, I'm not going to do it. We want him on our team. He doesn't say, no, I'm not going to do it. He says, no, I'm not going to do it. Um, <laughs> but perhaps that is a good place to wrap us up here. Uh, Crucible is definitely better than, the than I would say, Dark Nest, which was Denning's uh, the Just Denning trilogy. It is definitely better than Tatooine Ghost, which I didn't particularly care for, which was his only other Star Wars standalone novel. But it is not quite what people expect. Do not go into this with a lot of expectations for what it will be. I think you'll really enjoy it. If you walk into it with hardly any perceptions whatsoever, even in terms of the passing of the torch angle, um, I think you're going to find that this is a weaker book than it should have been for its place in what it's trying to do in the EU. Yeah, I, I think it's a strong book. I don't think it's a great book. Um, you know, like I said, the ending for me is what throws it all off. It got so confusing so fast that it, it kind of tainted the enjoyment I was having at the beginning. I mean, once I got up into chapter 20, I was like, dude, I can't set this book down. But then once we got into prime base and, and up to the uh, artifact, at that point, things just got so weird that it, it got hard to read. I mean, it, uh, still at this point, I don't have any idea what Holly was doing. I mean, she climbed into that Bakta tank for what reason again? I, I just don't even know. So there was a lot of that aspect of it when you get to that point in Mortis where and I keep saying Mortis, the monolith, uh, it just got so chaotic that, you know, if you can get past that, I think you may enjoy the book. Uh, I did enjoy it. I didn't care for the way it ended so much, but I did enjoy the book. It was a fun ride. It was an interesting take. I did enjoy the the villains. I thought that that was a, an interesting take. I did have to go, like I said, to, to uh, Wikipedia and get a, a visual image of them in my mind. Once I had that, I was able to get behind them as a big bad. But before I had that, I was really having a hard time, a, a nebulous idea of what these guys were supposed to be. Once I saw a, a picture of the Kalamai species, they do kind of have a sinister look to them. Then I was like, okay, I can get behind this a little more. 
from there, it was a good ride. But like I said, the ending was the hardest swallow. But, you know, if you like Trader, which I do, you know, I don't, I, I don't know. It, I, I liken it to Trader, but Trader actually gave you some depth and gave you some meaning where this gave you depth, but there was no meaning. It was all way open to interpretation. And that, I think, is the aspect of it that I did not like, whereas with Trader, I loved. Uh, once we got to that, that chaos at the end, that's going to be the hardest swallow. If you can swallow it enough that you're able to be like, okay, that was a pretty good shoe, you're going to like the book. But if you get to that part and it's just one of those that it knocks you out of it, you're going to not like it so much. And you probably think that the book was a colossal failure. But for me, I was able to I was able to swallow the pill. And so I, I like it. Uh, I would say it was better than The Last Jedi. And I like The Last Jedi. Uh, the Last Jedi slow part in the middle part is, you know, the equivalent of the ending of this. Uh, I like more about this than I did The Last Jedi. Um, both good books, though. I would recommend reading this one. But again, uh, only to those that are reading the majority of things. I, I would not say that this is a jumping in point like like they say in the uh, the arc at the beginning. I mean, granted, yeah, you could jump in, and I, I believe I did say it on Facebook, and they do do a good job of giving you enough details about things to leave you wanting to go back and read it. But I don't think you would get a satisfying read if this was a book that you just jumped into and you had no idea about everything. Yes, you could do it, and yes, it would work, but I don't think the book would be as good to you. And that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. Thank you, everyone, once again, for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing in the fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online at the Star Wars Report website. That's at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on iTunes, which we highly encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes both on Twitter and on our Facebook page at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. But no matter how you get there, be sure to like our page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. Also one of the fastest. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. If you have any other Star Wars slash EU questions that you have, or you have a comment about a past episode, fire off. You can email us directly at SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWorks.com. Now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention to you our Audible trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash Report, you get a free trial run of Audible.com to see what they're all about. With more than 100,000 titles, you can explore the Star Wars EU or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate. Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months, no questions asked. Yes, that's one whole year. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the screen or adding a digital library, Audible just might be right for you. That's right. And again, if you want to check out any of the stuff that my wife and I are selling on Amazon, old comics, in her case, some uh, old Barbies and old comics. I've got some Star Wars stuff on there, some uh, other sci-fi type stuff on there. Be sure to check our Amazon store. It's amazon.com slash shops slash Collectibles, L-I-L-J-O collectibles, all is one word. And if you want to interact on a chronology basis here as I'm gearing up for the release of the 2013 edition of the Star Wars Timeline Gold, be sure to check out the Facebook page for the Star Wars Timeline Gold. It's at facebook.com slash Gold. So, once again, for Star Wars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. Oh, buddy. And Nathan. Saying, may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that we'll ever find out just what that monolith thing was from this book. Or if we will see Sword of the Jedi soon in 2014. I'm not betting on that one. No!